Genesis 30 today. Genesis 30. Um, if you come from a dysfunctional family, have some difficulties, um, this chapter is going to make you feel happy. <laughs> because in comparison to whatever it is you're dealing with, it is nothing in comparison to this. This is your major dysfunctional family. Uh, the whole text is about uh, conflict within the family, and it's bizarre, and we get to read it. So here we go. Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. Do you remember what her sister's name was? Leah, absolutely. She became jealous of her sister, Leah. She said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Um, you know what's noticeable in this chapter? It's devoid of praying people. Nobody prays. Everybody knows of the existence of God. Nobody takes advantage of the presence of God. Nobody. Everyone does their own thing. This poor lady is desirous of bearing children. She's unable. She puts a rather unrealistic demand on her husband's shoulders. I mean, he could only do what he could do. Give me children lest I die. By the way, lest I die. Do you think that's a bit of an overstatement? Um... You know, it's a rough thing for a young couple, for instance, to desire to bear children and be unable to. We shouldn't minimize the pain the lady in particular is going through. We have a number of people in that situation here in the church, and we pray for them that the Lord would see fit to provide children in his time and his way. In this day... Genesis 30, uh, the ramifications of childlessness were even more weighty. A woman who couldn't provide her husband with children was thought to be one upon whom was divine displeasure. God doesn't like you. He's closed your womb. And that's a false conclusion to come to, isn't it? But that's the conclusion ladies came to in that particular day. So she uh, says to Jacob, you have to do this for me or else I'll die. In spite of the uh, pain of it all, weightiness, that is an overstatement. And it's reminiscent of one Jacob was privy to a few years prior to this. Do you remember when Esau came in from the field? Jacob was preparing a meal. Remember, he, Esau didn't even know what's cooking. He just decided he was hungry, and he said, give me some of that red stuff. Turns out to be red lentils, which is frequently served in the Middle East even today. Uh, but anyway, Esau said, I'm famished. Give me some of that red stuff, lest I die. Well, he wasn't going to die. He's hungry, but it wasn't uh, life-threatening. I wonder if God is allowing these things to happen, to conjure up in Jacob's mind similar prior experiences that he was responsible for so as to form and shape him. I mean, Jacob's a bit of a mess, and yet he's in the line, patriarchal line, line of Messiah. God's got a lot of work to do with this guy. So I wonder if now Jacob is hearing something just like 
what he heard before and which he took advantage of. It's very ironic, this whole episode, because Jacob is in a similar mess to that which his father Isaac was in. Isaac had two sons, Jacob being one, Esau being the other, and there was a competition, warfare, conflict between these two brothers. They were vying for the attention of their father, and now you have two sisters in competition for Jacob's affection. I wonder if a good and gracious God is sort of turning this back on Jacob just so that he could see what he's been like and where he needs, by God's grace, to change. Anyway, there's a problem. Jacob married two women and their sisters. You don't have to struggle to see that this is a formula for disaster. For crying out loud, one would surely be jealous of the affections shown by the husband to the other. It was polygamous, polygamy. So here's a biblical principle. Just because something is recorded in the Bible does not mean that that thing is condoned in the Bible. There's never a case in which polygamy is recorded where the outcome is good, positive, never. God's plan for marriage has been established earlier on, Genesis 2, for this cause, the cause of marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And just to show you that that standard in marriage has been reaffirmed through the millennia in spite of changing societal and cultural circumstances. The Lord, all the way over there in Matthew, I think it's 19, uh, when discussing with others the whole notion of marriage, makes reference back to the passage I just shared with you in Genesis chapter 2. Society changes, I gotcha, but God's perspective, particularly on things like marriage, is unchangeable. So polygamy is recorded, but definitely not condoned. Now here's what God did. He gave Rachel good looks. Didn't it say something about she was attractive in form or, I forget how it was put, but Chuck, you recall last week, Chuck like make it, made a big deal over that, <laughs> as if like that's the key thing. What does that tell you about him? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just a thought. I heard, and I think, like, that's the big deal? Where's your head for crying out loud? But anyway, so uh, God gave, it may be something when you see him you may want to bring up. I'm just saying, you know. Uh, so uh, he, God gave Rachel uh, two things. He gave her beauty and a husband who loved her. Jacob really loved her. But he didn't give her children. But he gave her sister children. But he didn't give her sister good looks. Leah was not a 10, apparently. And uh, Leah didn't have her husband's uh, affection and devotion. But each wants what the other has. Rachel has some stuff, but she wants what the, she doesn't have. Leah has some stuff, but she wants what she doesn't have. Folks, whoa, 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 whoa. we should not do this. You know what we should say? We should say, God, thank you for putting on my plate what you have put on my plate. I don't deserve what's on my plate. I'm not going to look on what you put on someone else's plate. I may think they have more on their plate than I have on mine. That I have anything is something I ought to be grateful for. The New Testament says we ought not be foolish. Don't compare yourself to someone else. I mean, God disseminates his gifts, talents, and blessings in accordance with his sovereignty. We should not look around 
to see what another has. We ought to just say, I'm glad I have you. I have, do you know, there's not a person in this room who's a Christian who has more or less of Jesus than anyone else. Did you know that? He doesn't come in installments. He's like a package deal. You have the total redeemer or you ain't got the redeemer. You know what I mean? So, so that ought to be enough to fill us up, make us satisfied instead of looking. Look what you gave that other guy. What did you give that guy that for? You know what I mean? But anyway, that's what they're doing. So this is horrific envy and as a result, competition. So what happens? Verse 2, Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. Generally speaking, when a guy gets angry, <clears throat> it's because he's frustrated. Because guys like to get stuff done, fix things, accomplish stuff, accomplish goals. When their goals are frustrated, they get angry. That's what guys do. What's really happening when a guy's goals are frustrated is that they're hurt. But guys don't do hurt because guys think anger is a masculine emotion and hurt is feminine. You know what I mean? So that's a terrible lie. That's what, whenever you see a guy who's really angry, that's a guy who's really hurting. He's just not in touch with his feminine side. <laughs> so this guy is burning with his anger against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the... He's right. He essentially tells Rachel, I'm not God. You know what someone said? Someone said, Jacob may have been strong enough to open a well, but he knows he's not strong enough to open a womb. Jacob can't do this. He's right. He's not God. But, uh, but, but even though he's right about that, wouldn't you agree that a little more sensitivity on his part wouldn't hurt? I mean, that's a bad thing to tell a lady grieving over her barrenness. You know what would have been a better thing? Why didn't he just pray? Why didn't he just say, my dear wife, I can hardly imagine how all this is impacting on you. If it was in my power to produce in you a child, surely I would, but I'm not able to. Am I in the place of God? I can't. He can. Would you allow me, therefore, to pray to him for you and at the same time for me. Wouldn't that have been good? We get nothing. We get nothing. Rachel's not praying. Jacob's not praying. There's like nothing going on except people who should have known better living life under the sun. There's like nothing above. There's, like, there's no transcendent reality. It's just the stuff of the day. And they're consumed by it. You know what's also ironic about the fact that he doesn't pray? His father was Isaac. Isaac was in a similar situation with his wife, Rebecca. She too couldn't bear children. You remember? What did Isaac do? He prayed. You know what the result was? Jacob. Isaac prayed. Jacob popped out. You would think Jacob would realize, oh my goodness, I'm the evidence of answered prayer. But he doesn't pray. So what's the uh, moral of the story? God doesn't have much to work with when he works with us. Let me tell you that. We're a mess. You say, why is this account in here? Maybe it's in here because it's a mirror. Genesis 3 is a mirror. We're supposed to hold it up, and then we get a reflection of what human nature is. It's not a pretty picture for crying out loud. We know of the existence of God, and yet we'll get so immersed with the stuff of life, we won't even call upon him. We're just like these 
people. So verse 3, she said, Rachel said, this is getting really bizarre here, folks. Buckle up. She said, here's my maid, Bilhah. That means slave. In those days, you could own a woman, and that woman was property. Here's my property, Bilhah. Go into her, a biblical euphemism for have relations with her. Go into her that she may bear on my knees that through her I too may have children. Not the first time we read about a weird practice like this. Remember when Sarah orchestrated this with Hagar, an Egyptian handmaid? She said to uh, her husband, I'm going to send Hagar you know, go, to you, go into her, produce a child. The child will be mine. That's the way it was. The slave had no rights. If the slave woman produces a child, it belongs to the wife. So, And by the way, this practice, as odd as it seems, was prevalent in ancient days. We have um, historical records indicating that this was a, uh, quite an integral part of society. If a woman could not provide her husband with children, she could do this. He could father a child through another woman, her handmaid, and that child would be hers, the actual wife, not the concubine. That's, it was a con- but this is an illustration of this. Just because, once again, something is mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean that that thing is condoned in the Bible. But here's another thing. Just because something is acceptable to the society and even legal doesn't make it biblical. There's a whole bunch of stuff, moral issues confronting us today uh, that are legitimate from a legal point of view, but which we must not engage in. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven. We operate by a different constitution. It's called scripture. So anyway, here's the practice. And just to show you how weird this is, does your verse 3 have this expression, on my knees? Do you have something like that, on my knees? If you don't have that, you should get another Bible because it should be there somewhere in some fortune. But here's what that means. It's a little weird, but here's what it means. It's literal. It's not a figure of speech. Here's what would happen. Uh, The woman of the house would work out this arrangement. And when it came time for uh, physical relations between her husband and her handmaid, the handmaid would actually lean back and rest on the lady's lap. The encounter would take place that way, and even the birth. When it was time for the baby to be birthed, the handmaid would come again. So it would literally be on the actual wife's knees that the baby was produced. It's graphic symbolism so as to indicate the circuit is just that. She's just standing in for the actual wife. She has really no rights uh, uh, commensurate with all this stuff. She's just been being, she's been used, actually. So that's what, a little strange, but there you go. Verse 4. So she gave him her maid, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. So there's something about human nature. We're just a bunch of weird folk. I mean, here's what I mean. There are sometimes we do something that is clearly outside the will of God, but if it produces a benefit 
we attach him to it. We say, God has done this. You know what I mean? We do some stuff. And if it produces, as we term it, success, relationship or this or that, whatever the deal is, blatantly uh, independent of God, if it produces a good outcome, a positive outcome, we'll say something like that God is, we'll connect God to it. When you connect God to fleshly stuff, that's called blasphemy. That's a violation of that commandment. That's sort of using the Lord's name in vain. You're dragging his name down from heaven to be part and parcel to your very, very carnal and fleshly tactic. You can't do that. You know, you, you know why this happened? This didn't happen because of what Rachel did. This happened because God is sovereign and merciful, and he does things in spite of us most often. God has vindicated me. He's heard my voice and has given me a son, and therefore she named him Dan. By the way, the names of all of these kids who are being born are associated with the circumstances of their birth. Dan means judgment. She said, God has judged me finally rightly. He's vindicated me as over against my sister and given me a son. Names in that day were more than designation. Today, largely, if you're looking for babies, baby names, you look for a baby name that goes good with your last name. You know what I mean? And if you've got like a weird last name, then you try to get a simple first name for this kid because you don't want to penalize this kid for the rest of his or her life. But in that day, that's not the way it was. Names weren't just for designation. They were kind of a face by which the one named was known. So, for instance, Moses means drawn forth. Moshe, drawn forth. Because you remember Moses was drawn forth from the Nile River? Noah means comfort because God said he shall comfort my people. Jesus, Yeshua, means savior. Why? He will save his people from their sins. You see how the name is kind of a Tells the story of the person. It's not just a designation. So anyway, everyone named here uh, is named this way. So she names him Dan. Now, verse 7. Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and I've indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid, her maid, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. You know what's ironic? Crying out loud. Jacob wants to be the guy who's in control of stuff. He's like a mastermind manipulator, deceptive guy, doing all this kind of stuff. But in this chapter, it's four women who are leading this guy around by the nostrils. You know what I mean? He's just going from bed to bed, pillar to post. He has nothing to do with Jacob. Okay, fine. Let's, here I am. Let's get it done. I just, I just want to keep peace in the house now. Unbelievable, but just a crazy sort of a thing here. I don't get it. So anyway, uh, that's what happened. So verse 10, Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. That's what Gad means, fortune. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. And she named him Asher. You know what's sad about that? It's the source of Leah's happiness. The source of Leah's happiness is what others thought about Leah, in particular women. Oh, my goodness. That's kind of like a form of idolatry. That's making the opinion of others like God's opinion. Wouldn't it be best if we could find our peace, our joy, our happiness 
in God's response to us. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You're adopted into my family. I call you a son. Wouldn't it be best that his response to us be the source of our happiness? I'm not going to understand this. Leah's in competition with another woman, Rachel. Therefore, the opinions of women is very important to her. I got it. But the opinions of others can take on too much import. Folks, we have the favor of Almighty God. That's going to just have to be the treasure we derive most happiness from. Well, verse 14, now in the days of, oh my goodness, just when you think you can't get any stranger, look at this. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she Leah said to her, said to Rachel, is it a small matter for you to take my husband and would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. What in the world? Uh, so uh, Leah's going to get the chance to sleep with uh, Jacob. Uh, it's quite a steep price. It's a plant. That's what a mandrake is. It's a plant. So Jacob apparently can be bought for a plant. <laughs> Got high standards, Jake. Way to go. So a mandrake is a, uh, a, it's a sort of a low-growing plant, has dark leaves, has roots, kind of like a carrot. It looks like lettuce but it's dark. Sometimes it blossoms and has white and red blossoms, has a sweet smell and uh, bears a fruit, kind of like an apple. In fact, the ancients called its fruit love apples. It was thought to be an aphrodisiac. It would encourage romance and also uh, fertility. It was thought. We don't have much evidence of that, but that's, that's, uh, that's, that's what they thought. So... Uh, Here's what Rachel, Rachel said, you know, I'm kind of tired of waiting on God. Uh, so maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe some love apples would help. That's what she's doing. You know, just to show you how weird we are. Isn't it fascinating that we will choose to depend on anyone or anything before God? Fascinating to me. We would rather depend on a plant than on almighty God. Why is that? Because let's face it. Even though you're a follower of the Lord, you're a believer and stuff like that, nobody wants to depend on him. We hate that. You know, because depending on God means i got to wait for him to deliver the goods. Really. I mean, I want something, I pray, and then I can almost hear God say, yeah, cool, I'll come through for you, but not on your schedule. No, man. But I want what I want now. So therefore, if I can be the master of my own destiny and bring about positive outcome in my life without waiting on God, I don't need God. I can be God. And that's the number one human malady, a quest for independence from the giver of life. So we, we, do, we, we, we would even stoop so low as to think grass, plants, can, <coughs> can pull off childbearing rather than 
Almighty God. So verse 16, when Jacob came in from the field, get this, in the evening, Leah went out to meet him. Why did she go out to meet him? She didn't even wait for him to get home from work. She sort of met him halfway. This is one desperate woman. I mean, she wants him to, I mean, I, she bought him, you know, with the mandrakes. Uh, and so she said, you must come into me. For, that's kind of a biblical euphemism for uh, sexual relations. You must come into me, for I have surely hired you. Man, I can feel the love. <laughs> I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And so Jacob, he lay with her that night. Okay, sounds good to me. <laughs> Unbelievable kind of stuff. You, and I'll tell you why I know she's desperate. You see that phrase, you must come into me? In Hebrew, it's a technical phrase, and it literally means the first sexual encounter a man has with a woman. That's what that means. Yeah, but wait a second. Jacob and Leah have had relations before. Yeah, but from Leah's point of view, it must have been so long ago. See, he's showing favor to Rachel. She's using an expression so as to indicate it's, there's a time factor here as if it never happened. This is, this is the first time. That's what's going on. So, yeah, brother. You know, uh, I guess Jacob would like to think he's in control. But when you try to maintain control of your own life, you lose control. And so if, if you refuse to be mastered by a benevolent Lord, then you will be mastered by some other master. Not so benevolent. You see, that? so that's kind of what's happening here. So verse 17, God gave heed to Leah. She conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. God, God didn't give heed to mandrakes and all this kind of stuff. He gave heed to Leah. Why? Was she such a good? No, she's a mess. He gave heed to Leah the same reason he gives heed to you and I. He's a gracious and good God. So God blessed her, not her tactics, he blessed Jacob, not his tactics. He blesses us, not the stuff we do. He blesses us because he wants to. Well, anyway, Rachel's plan really backfires because Leah is just pumping out kids like there's no tomorrow. So verse 18, then Leah said, um, God has given me my wages. What in the world? Because I gave my maid to my husband. You know, a rather elementary deficient notion of God. You know what I mean? You know, at the beginning, these people know nothing about God, nor did we. She thinks it's sort of, uh, I do this, God, you owe me that. I, you know, I, I worked out this deal, so my wage is such a, that's not the way, does it work that way with God? God, here's the, we're in partnership. Uh, if I do good stuff, you give me good stuff? Oh, no. When God delivers good things to us, it's always on the basis of his grace and mercy for crying out loud, that's, it's not anything due us, so she doesn't quite get it yet. Anyway, um, she um, named the, the child Issachar at this particular point. And verse 19, Leah conceived again, bore a sixth son to Jacob. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I've borne him six sons. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her, we would say Dinah, but in Hebrew, it's Dina. Dina. Let's say Dinah. So this sort of implies there's only one girl born to this family, a bunch of boys, one girl, doesn't it? But that's not actually true. For instance, let me share with you a couple of verses. Genesis 37, verses 34, 35. Jacob tore his clothes. 
put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son, it was Joseph, many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters, plural, arose to comfort him. So apparently Dinah, Dina, was not the only girl. How about this? Genesis 46, verse 15. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, with his daughter, Dinah. All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. See? So why is only one identified by name? It's because when we get to Genesis 34, and frankly, I doubt we ever will. <laughs> but, but if, perchance, we get to Genesis 34, you'll read a tragic incident in which Dinah plays a key role. It's about rape and murder and vengeance and all this. It's a bunch of crazy stuff. So God now is identifying her because it will be important for us to connect with her when we get to Genesis 34. Now, this also tells you something about the Bible. It's this, and it's frustrating to most. God never intended the Bible to tell us everything we want to know. No. He only intended for the Bible to tell us everything he thinks we need to know. Therefore, I don't know the names of the other girls, neither do you. There is no extraneous information in the Bible. It's just what the divine author has seen fit to reveal to us. Now, I'll tell you what we do, some of us. We're aggravated with God over what he has not told us rather than thanking God because of what he has told us. He doesn't have to tell us anything. That almighty God who's transcendent reveals anything to us is something we ought to thank him for. Instead, we say, well, the Bible doesn't say this. The Bible doesn't, it doesn't relate to this. Why doesn't it explain this? How does this work? You know, those people who labor over those things are folks who don't want to apply what's obvious. They just want to be angry at God because he didn't spill the beans, the whole deal. I mean, don't worry. If you know him by faith, you'll see him face to face one day and everything will be revealed, but not until then. Right now, he's only given us what he wants us to know. So verse 22, then God remembered Rachel, and God, get, does that mean he had forgotten? Oh, man, God says, I am so busy. I'm stressed out. Yeah, I mean, My do list is full. Oh, Rachel, <laughs> I forgot about her. No, that's not what it means. This is called the language of accommodation. I mean, this is almighty God who stoops so as to make himself available to us linguistically. But he has to use words we can get. So this is kind of an accommodation. It's as if God forgot her, but never. It just means he waited for a particular time, a time he felt best, when he would focus on her, respond to her, meet her need. That's what it means. So God remembered Rachel and gave heed to her and opened her womb. So have you ever felt, even though you're a believer, you're a Christian, have you ever felt that God doesn't hear you, see you, care for you? It would be normal if you have. Uh, it's just that it's not true. The feelings are not substantiated by the facts. The facts are he sees us. I mean, he saw, heard, heeded Rachel and Leah. And let me tell you, they, neither was very hot. Good night. They are really, really 
at best, immature in their understanding of God. Yet God heeded and heard them. So, so God hears us. He sees us. And here's the other deal. This is the toughest one to get. God loves us. Yeah. You know what helps me Gen to believe that? Genesis 30. There's not a, a together person in the chapter. I mean, they are messed up dudes and dudettes. Are you kidding me? And I say, man, I feel good about myself. I fit in. <laughs> I belong. I'm not left out. You see what I mean? All of our beginnings have been rather messy, have they not? But God can make something out of us. Yeah, praise God is right. So anyway, um, he remembers Rachel. She conceives, verse 23. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And so she named Joseph, saying, uh, may the Lord uh, give me another son. Joseph means something like more to come. So I'll tell you what's interesting about this uh, narrative. Here you have the names of the forebears of the 12 tribes of Israel. Did you notice that? So later on in Israel's history, we Jewish people may become filled with pride because God has chosen us. There's no doubt about that. He has chosen us for whatever purpose he has. I mean, the Messiah himself is coming through a very Jewish line. He's Jewish. So we could do a whole bunch of patting on the back. We could sort of say, obviously, God chose us and not you because we are better than you. See how easy it is to, make, to come to that conclusion? But when my people look back on our roots, it's a little hard to brag about it. I mean, the leaders of our 12 tribes had a very spotted beginning, did they not? This is something not to fill us with pride, but to humble us. For crying out loud, you got concubines, you got wives, you got women, you got plants, for which the guy, whatever. It's just a bizarro, this is, it's not exactly, hey man, let me tell you about my roots. I'm so, it's sort of like, let's skip this chapter. But that's the way it is, so that our boast is only in the awesomeness of God, not in our own stuff. If you think back on your own life as a believer, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you're probably a mess yourself. You know, I suppose he's, he has saved some from the choir, but others of us he saved from the gutter. You know, I went to, uh, wife and I went out with a couple the other night to have dinner, and uh, we were just talking. One thing led to another, Christian couple. We just were sharing stuff before we knew Christ, and Later on, I thought, oh, my goodness, that, that stuff which characterized me, I can't hardly relate to it anymore. It's like a different life, a different lifestyle. But, 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 but God didn't have much. I, I mean, my beginnings were rather humble. I mean, I remember one time getting so wasted. I was so wasted. I remember I was in a room, and I remember myself falling towards the ground. It was a tile floor. That's all I remember until the next morning when I woke up. And I couldn't lift my cheek off the tile floor because it was stuck to it in a pool of my own dried vomit. That's where God saved me from. Not the choir loft, not vacation Bible school, not a Christian home. From vomit. That's what he said. So, you know, when I look at this chapter and say, God, these people are so weird. Hey, hey, it's a mirror. Welcome to the family. We all have rather humble beginnings for crying out loud. 
What did you bring to the table at the point of salvation? Are you kidding me? Nothing, not a thing. You see what I mean? But look at what God is making out of us, a people group uh, from whom he receives glory. That is just it's extraordinary. You want to hear this? The New Testament says one day we will be presented to him, the Father. Look what it says. Holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. We are none of those things yet. But notice what it says. We will be presented. We're not going to present ourselves. It's not active. It's passive. We are passive. The action is taken by the Lord. He will so work it out. He will so transform us that when we are presented before the Father, it'll be different than we could ever credit to ourselves. We'll be holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. These folks are in the line of Messiah Jesus. This is the patriarchal family. But boy... To begin with, God has a lot of work to do. So too with us. So, um, I don't have, know what else to say. <laughs> How about this? And we'll end with this, then maybe have some questions. Um, do you know we live in a very imperfect world, s- such, such as is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 30? It's really, really, it's just quite an imperfect world. It's a drag. You know, a lot of us would like, to, we want to like be out of here. You know, beam me up, Scotty. But it, that's not the way it works. Um, God, God, God wants us to sort of stick around in this imperfect world for a spell. Why? He wants us to impact on it. He wants us to bring about change in people's lives. He, you know what he wants us? He wants us to be salt. That's a preservative. And light. Light illuminates the darkness. That's what he wants us to do. It's a bit of a drag. You know what I mean? We all want to be out of here. Let's just face it. I mean, it's Genesis 30 all over the place, for crying out loud. But God says, no, 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 not yet. And he says, I know everything is wrong, but one day when I return, I'll make everything you've made wrong right. And all he says is keep going until the time when I make everything that you broke right. I will do that. Until then, you have something to do. Walk with me. Tell others about me. Don't take credit for where you are. Good night. You're just like these people in Genesis 30, albeit in different ways. What do we have that we did not receive from a God who's taken up his abode in our lives? So even one as esteemed as Paul says, I have to let my boast be in what he did, not in what I do or what I did. So there you go, Genesis 30. Now, I want us to stop here because it really gets weird in the next part. And I think like we have, we have accomplished the weird quotient for the day. <laughs> Next week, it's really, really weird. So what you want to do, you want to bone up on your animal husbandry <laughs> for next week. Because it's about goats and sheep and stuff spotted and striped and black and white. And what you want to do is get them to mate in front of a pole. And then you could get certain, I mean, it, it's, it's in there. What I really think I want to do is slow down a whole lot and stick Brother Chuck with that text. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because he stuck me with this one. I know, what he, I know what he does. I know what he does. But anyway, it's kind of an interesting thing. There's more of the same. It's humankind doing their own thing. Kind of a nod to God. Sure, I believe in God. 
But I don't believe he's my Lord. I don't believe I can talk to him. I don't believe he's interested in my day-to-day experience, and therefore I will live my day-to-day experience apart from him. So we're going to see more of that at the end of Genesis 30. Does anyone have any comments, questions, or anything like that? Yes, ma'am. It's a great observation. The, uh, the woman given as the wife was not technically the wife. She didn't have the rights and privileges of the actual wife, but she's not technically a concubine either. So those terms are used interchangeably of the surrogate. Sometimes she's called wife, albeit with lesser status. Sometimes she's called concubine, albeit with higher status. She's like a different category. Why don't we have the right words for it? Because it's not meant to be never was meant to be just a weird it's just a weird thing humankind has come up with yes danny okay so danny says verse eight it says with great wrestlings i have wrestled with my sister danny says this is what danny does here's how danny does it he says did you cover that so let me translate. Let me translate. That is Danny's way of saying, hey, you didn't say anything about it. You dropped the ball in verse 8. That's what Danny does. I'm telling you. I know him. And I'm, I'm really glad. I'm not, married. I'm not married to him. I don't know if you knew that. I pray for Sandy. Okay, no, I, I didn't cover it, Danny, so shoot me. I mean, uh, what, what, would you help us, please? <laughs> <laughs> I don't like Gentiles, especially tall ones. <laughs> well, anyway, she means wrestling in the emotional, psychological sense, not an actual physical, like their arm wrestling. Is that what you're getting at? It was a competition, one-upsmanship between the sisters. Oh, definitely wacko, yeah. That's correct. And she didn't, did she? Because Leah is outdistancing her in terms of producing children. That, yeah, I think I did say something like that. So thanks. I sort of covered it a little more than you insinuate. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. It's just in your, look, here's the deal. Again, once again, no matter what we have, if someone has something else, we minimize what we have. I mean, it just, we, we do that and then we, we just, you get crazy. Look, here's the deal. Again, the craving is independence from God. But then when a loving, gentlemanly God lets us go, we become quite irrational. You know what I mean? When we get out from under the mind of Christ and all the rest, we're just left with our own mind. And our minds are so weird, as in that case. Good observation, Danny. <laughs> Anyone else have, have anything better? It should be easy. Okay, so you want to go to lunch or something? Is that the idea? Do you know Brother John is just getting warmed up in there and we're done? I'm a much better person than he is. Look at that. Yeah. Yes, Mac. I promise I might.
Look at that. Well, it's not due to anything we coordinated. I thank you for doing that. Danny, you should hang out more with people. You know, I'm just saying. That was beautiful. That, that was encouraging. That was encouraging. All right. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, absolutely. If it was important, I would. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not. Okay, I will next time around. But first, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thanks for everything. Uh, thanks for giving us a clearer picture of two things. Human nature, not so hot. Divine nature, really perfect, gracious. When we're at our worst, as in this chapter, you are at your best. Thanks for not giving up on us. Thanks for making us to be more like you over time. And thank you for telling us in advance what the final result will be. We'll be presented before you, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. In advance, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you folks. Hope to see you next time. We'll talk about cows and goats. <laughs>